0: The reading this morning from the Old Testament is Psalm 22 and commencing verse 23 and reading through to the end of the psalm. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord, and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. New Testament reading is Mark, and it's chapter 2, verses 13-13 to 17, Jesus went out again beside the lake. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners.
1: We have a friend (coughs) who puts considerable thought into what she calls her fantasy dinner parties. Sometimes these are, at least in theory, realistic possibilities, because the fantasy guest list comprises people who are both real and alive, but sometimes the guests are fictional, or dead, or indeed both. And I can see the fun in this. At my personal Formula One fantasy dinner party, currently has Murray Walker, Damon Hill, Ayrton Senna, and Juan Manuel Fangio attending. Whilst my Baptist minister evening would include Violet Hedger, one of the early pioneers of women in ministry, alongside the great scholar pastor David Russell and John Tattersall, the minister who baptized me. But sadly, all three of those Baptist ministers are now dead, so it's unlikely to happen this side of eternity. And I wonder, who would you invite to your fantasy dinner party? Would you have the great and the good there? The famous and the infamous? Would you have family and friends? Or the strange and the stranger? Would your fantasy dinner party include Levi, I wonder? The first century tax collector from Mark's Gospel. If so, it would be an odd choice, because he wasn't the kind of guy to get many dinner party invitations. In those days, unlike today, of course, tax collectors occupied a position on the edge of acceptable society. They weren't doing anything illegal, always carefully making sure that they were on the right side of the first century tax evasion, tax avoidance line, but definitely morally suspect, and certainly not the kind of people you would have round to your house without first making sure that all your receipts were in order. The fundamental problem with tax collectors like Levi was that they were working for the wrong side, They were Jews working for the Romans. They were crossing cultural boundaries, best left uncrossed. Israel at that time was an occupied province, firmly under Roman control and paying taxes according to Roman laws. And quite naturally, under the circumstances, Jewish nationalism was thriving We want our country back, was written deep in the heart and soul of every Jew to seethe in anger at Roman boots on the sacred ground of the promised land. If there had been an option for a referendum to exit the Roman economic community, it would have passed unanimously. But of course no such option existed. Because Roman economics, like the economics of every empire ever since, was predicated on Roman military might. Voting to leave this particular empire would have been pointless. An armed insurrection was often the only option open to disaffected young Israelis hoping for a better life and greater self-determinacy. And here we have Levi, a Jew, not only taking a job for the imperial overlords, but a job collecting taxes from his own people. More more a collaborator than a collector, one might say. An unscrupulous bureaucrat willing to compromise his own purity for profit and to betray his own people for a touch of power. And it is this tax collector called Levi who Jesus ends up sharing a meal with. Well, is it any wonder that the ardently nationalist Pharisees start to get so upset with Jesus so early in the gospel? They had their own plan and agenda for resisting the Roman occupation, and it certainly didn't involve cozying up to compromised collaborators. Neither for the Pharisees did it involve armed rebellion, or indeed much in the way of public opposition. For the Pharisees, resisting the Romans was primarily about exercising what we might today call non-violent resistance. And it's a perspective with which I find myself having a great deal of sympathy. Their resistance revolved around resisting compromise over the core of their religious identity. They were going to be the best Jews they could as far as possible, within the letter of the law, and encouraging people to follow their lead and avoiding assimilation to the oppressive and seductive forces of the empire. The world of the Pharisees is the world of the boycott. It's the world of the high moral grounds, the world of careful avoidance of compromise. And the last thing they needed with some populist preacher undermining all their hard work by going to share food with a tax collector. In ancient Mediterranean culture, the sharing of a meal lay at the heart of society. Traditions of hospitality ran deep. And one of the greatest honors you could pay to another person was to give or receive food. This was, after all, an agrarian society, and the link between the land and the food consumed was so much more apparent than it often is for us in our world. To break bread with someone was to honor them. And so the Pharisees had strict rules over who it was permissible to share food with, because if they could control who ate with whom, they could control a significant aspect of the way society functions but here's an interesting thing. It's not just Levi the tax collector at this meal with Jesus the radical preacher. Mark tells us that Jesus ate food with tax collectors, plural, and with sinners. It's not only Levi and his accountancy friends at this table. Others, the sinners, ate there too. Now, from the point of view of the Pharisees, there may not have been much to differentiate tax collectors from other sinners. But you can be sure that in the non purist world of the everyday Jew, there was a whole world of difference. And it had to do with indebtedness. The nation of Israel was in debt to a foreign power. In a situation that has striking similarities to the financial enslavement experienced by many countries in the developing world today, Israel owed a debt to Rome that they could never repay. All they could do was service the interest, so to speak, through paying exorbitant taxes, hoping that the Romans wouldn't send in their crack legions to call time and strip the country of its remaining assets. And whilst Levi and his fellow tax collectors were servicing this system, the other sinners sat at this table on this occasion with Jesus represented those who were in debt. The tax collectors were those who were collecting the debt. Tax collectors and sinners would not normally sit down and share a meal together. And yet, here they all are at Levi's house, sharing food with Jesus while the Pharisees look on disapprovingly, as Pharisees always do. All of which begs the question of just what is going on here. And it also asks us to make our own difficult choice. Where in all of this do our sympathies lie? Are we with Jesus, destroying taboos and breaking boundaries, fire you up? Or are we with the long game of the Pharisees faithfully and legally resisting the temptations to compromise? I, for one, don't think this is a straightforward question to answer. Well, let's look at the story a little bit more closely and see where it takes us. The class enmity between sinners and tax collectors could only have been broken down if there had been some kind of debt relief some kind of release from an obligation. Because without that, the person who owes and the person who is collecting could never share table fellowship within the honor culture of the first century. Something had shifted in that relationship. And it is this this debt relief, this release from obligation, that we meet time and time again in the stories of the ministry of Jesus. Perhaps the most obvious example is in the Lord's Prayer itself. We often recite it, uh, as I think we did earlier, um, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. However, Matthew's Gospel gives us an alternative way of saying the same thing. If you read the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, it reads, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The sinners who eat with Levi can do so because their debts have been released, or to put it another way, their sins have been forgiven. The gospel or good news of Jesus to tax collectors and sinners concerns the equalization of power, concerns the forgiveness of sins and the canceling of indebtedness. Of course, this is no new insight. The Jews knew very well that the people of God were called to have a radically different approach to issues such as power and debt and money and property and relationships compared with the other nations around them. You only have to go back into the Old Testament and read the ancient Jewish laws relating to Sabbath and Jubilee, issues and principles that were enshrined deep within their society to see mechanisms in place there for restoring relationships across socioeconomic divides. So the stories of creation speak of a rhythm of work and rest. Six days God labours and on the seventh day God rests. And this is where the pattern of the working week comes from, which comes right the way down into our culture today. And we know it's good. We know it's a good idea that after six days of hard labour... It's time for a day off. Some of us might say, after five days, it's time for two days off. And so you get the weekend. But at the very least, a day off every seven is, is a good thing to do. This seven day pattern continues in the story of the mysterious manor in the wilderness, which sustains the Israelites for 40 years. Every day, every morning, the food appeared on the ground. Only enough for that day tried to carry any over, it just went rotten. You had to be daily reliant on God if you were wandering in the wilderness at that period. Until on the sixth day, when there was a double amount on the ground, and that would carry you through for the seventh day, and it didn't go rotten. Well, taking this pattern of six of labor and one of rest, and enshrining it in law, the Jewish Torah actually required a Sabbath for the land. Every seventh year, the land was to be rested, left fallow, rather than over-farmed. And it's only been with the introduction of modern fertilizers that farming has moved away from this practice. I mean, science now will tell us things about nitrogen fixation and that kind of stuff, and we know why it's a good idea to leave the ground idle for a year. They knew it back then, because they... I guess somebody tried farming every year and it didn't work. And then the the land needs a rest. People need a rest. Well, there remain serious environmental questions about the overuse of the land without allowing it time to recover, which we might want to hear in our modern world. But in addition to the ecological wisdom here, the practice of resting the land also functioned at both a psychological and a spiritual level to break the sense of ownership over the land. The whole of capitalist society is constructed on the basic premise that it is possible to own capital, and at its most basic level, capital is represented by a plot of land. This church was once one of three If you look on the old maps, there was one just over there, I think that was the French Protestants, and there was another one over there, and I forget off the top of my head which one it was, but we had three churches in a row, all built on land that had been leased. And when the landowner wanted the land back, those churches were demolished, not because their congregations had diminished or because the buildings had reached the end of their useful life, but because the landowner wanted the land back. This church was fortunate. The Baptist Union raised enough money to buy the land. We own our land. What does it mean to own land? The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, says the Psalms. There is a powerful counter-narrative to the basis of capitalism right the way through the Hebrew Scriptures. And the idea of resting the land, of not farming it for a period, of giving the land back to God breaks that sense of ownership. And it reminds people that they are merely stewards of a world that exists far beyond their own lifespan. And then here's a really interesting thing. Every seventh seven-year cycle, because the Jews really liked their sevens, after 49 years of labor and rest, once in a lifetime, there was to be what was called the year of jubilee, the year when debts were forgiven, when the land reverted back to the tribe that originally owned it. There was this kind of land construct that the 12 tribes had their own bits of land and the families within them had their own bits of land. It was very communitarian, very much everybody owned equally. And, of course, uh, that began to get out of balance as the years went by. But every 50th year, the land reverted back, slaves were released, and wealth was redistributed. Now, there is, uh, in scholarship around Old Testament studies... Uh, quite a lot of doubt as to whether this actually ever happened. Uh, it, it sounds like a kind of an idealistic economic thought experiment. And those of us who are practical types will be sitting there going, oh, that never bloom in work, that's no a nonsense. But it invites us to go with it, at least at a thought level, and see what the thought experiment does to the way we think about our relationship to land and ownership. In an agrarian society, the cycle of poverty begins when a family has to sell their land, and the process of one family growing richer whilst another descends towards bond slavery is begun. And again, the similarities to global cycles of poverty and wealth in our own world are striking as the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And Sabbath and Jubilee, these two related concepts, challenge this cycle. They assert a counter-narrative that the purpose of economics should not be about facilitating surplus accumulation by the few, but about guaranteeing enough for everyone. That's the insight from the ancient Jewish thought experiment on economics. And the theological insight... Underpinning this economic idealism is also very straightforward. The earth belongs to God and all that is in it. The earth's fruits are free. And so people should justly distribute those fruits instead of seeking to own and hoard them. And so we come back to Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, sharing food with the debtors, and with the agents of enslavement alike. And it's all about sharing, and it's all about forgiveness, and it's all about food and power and inequality and sin. And the Pharisees don't like it one bit, because it is messing with their status quo. A rabbi like Jesus should not sit and eat with tax collectors or sinners And neither should tax collectors sit and eat with sinners. This is a new economics being modeled here. It is the economics of forgiveness. And its challenge remains as sharp in the 21st century as ever it was in the 1st century, especially when we read it in a context of haves and have-nots, of vested interests and enshrined inequalities. I'm not going to get too political about this today. I'll leave it for each of us to weigh our own perspective on politics and economics against the measure of the relationships modelled by Jesus and the new economics of the kingdom of God that he proclaimed when he said, I have come to inaugurate the year of Jubilee. But just for a moment, imagine with me a fantasy dinner party where the street homeless person is sat at table with the person who paid off their mortgage years ago. Imagine an unemployed person sat at table with the person whose job has just required them to sanction that person's benefits. Imagine a person with a disability sat at table with a target-driven work capability assessor. Imagine a junior doctor sat with the secretary of state for health. And then you be the judge. Who here is sick and who is healthy? And in the middle of it, hear Jesus saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. For Jesus, those who are sick are the tax collectors and the sinners, He diagnoses the nature of society's malaise as a sickness in the system which enslaves the poor and the vulnerable, excluding them from society, and which co-opts good people to its corrupting aims. Those who think they are healthy in this analysis are the beneficiaries of the system. And Jesus says that they have no need of him. He doesn't sit there and share food with the Pharisees. All of which brings us to today, and to our church, and how we will live together. This is a church which has, since its foundation nearly 170 years ago, sought to care for the poor and the vulnerable, to see the person behind the predicament, to bring relief to those enslaved to sin and trapped in sickness. This is who we are. It is what we do, and we do it in very many different ways. And then we take that hands-on engagement, that lived reality of equality and sharing, and we offer our experience of it to a wider conversation about how we will shape society. It's why we don't shy away from talking politics, and it's why we do give time and energy and money to organisations like London Citizens. But if it is to be real for us, if it is to go anywhere else... We have to work out what it is for Jesus to sit and eat with sinners and tax collectors in our midst. And we have to be honest about the nature of our own place at that table. We are, all of us, sick. We are, all of us, indebted through sin. We are, all of us, enslaved to a system that diminishes and demeans. And this is true whether we own property or sleep rough. If we deny our sickness, we deny our need of a saviour, and we take our place with the Pharisees, and we surrender our place at the table. Last Sunday lunchtime, we continued our conversation as a church about what we might do with the basement on Sundays when it reopens later this year following the months of renovation. And it's clear that an important part of this will involve our sharing of food together as we sit at table with one another and invite Jesus to join us. Several of the comments from that meeting have stayed with me, but one in particular seems especially relevant here. One of our congregation, and I I can't remember who it was, but if it was you, come and tell me. One of our congregation observed that we had just shared communion in the morning service and said that for them, when we share food over Sunday lunch... It is like we create a communion service for the vulnerable and the elderly who come, that it is our way of sharing Christ. And I love this. Yes and amen, I want to say to this. Another way of putting it would be to say that our eating together, rich and poor, housed and homeless, strong and vulnerable, is a sacramental act. It's something we do in obedience to the call of Christ in expectation and faith that Christ joins us in the doing of it. And this isn't just true of Sunday lunch. It's true of all the other times we share food together as a church. And there are so many of those, from home groups to church socials to Tuesday lunches to the night shelter to the evening center to the young adults group to shared biscuits in the foyer to communion services. I could go on and on. Bloomsbury truly is a church which marches on its stomach. And we do so to share Christ because we are his body. And here's the thing about the body of Christ. Here's the truth of the broken bread of the communion table. The body of Christ is broken. We are broken. We are sick. It's why we need our great physician. And if our shared Food is to be sacramental. If it is to make Christ known in the sharing of it, then it has to involve sacrifice. As Levi the tax collector had to give up his hard-won advantage so that the debt of sinners might be cancelled, so we too are called to sacrificial living. The awful truth of the call of Christ, the truth that the Pharisees couldn't cope with, is that the powerful are called to give up their power. If all we do is try to feed the poor, to alleviate their hunger, to meet their needs, then we're not truly sharing Christ with them, because the differences of power remain unaddressed. Charity has value, and it has its place, but charity is not the kingdom of God. The terrible truth of the call of Christ is that if we are to see debts cancelled and sins forgiven and good news made manifest in our midst, then we have to be willing to give away our control and our power to give up our vested interests and our personal desires. As Nye Bevin put it, the purpose of power is to give it away. And then... As we take our own seat at the table, no better or worse than anyone else, tax collectors and sinners together. Then we meet the risen Jesus as we gather around his table.